Do sit down. Well, let me uh, add my welcome to uh, that of uh, David's. Uh, I've been away for a week uh, until uh, Tuesday this week, and it was great to be away between Christmas and New Year. Let me uh, also uh, wish you a very happy New Year. New Year and New Year's resolutions and all of that, I've uh, put an outline, a sermon outline together. Um, So uh, if you like these things, you might like to follow it through. Enjoy it while it lasts. Like all New Year's resolutions, it won't go very far. Um, But uh, I intend to do it for the next couple of weeks anyway. We'll see how we go. Um, And you'll see from there, we're looking at Matthew chapter 18, and verses 1 to 10, and uh, you might like to turn back in your Bibles to page 985, page 985 in the Church Bibles, um, and then you'll know where we're going, and the handout should help you also to know where I'm going. A couple of years ago, a, uh, a Mori poll revealed that 3 million family rows took place in the UK over the Christmas period. Police statistics suggest that 50,000 serious domestic incidents occurred over Christmas. It seems that a couple of days with the extended family and goodwill to all men is tested to the limit. People who are the most mild-mannered individuals all year round find the festive season brings them to the end of their tether and they wish it wasn't only the turkey that got stuffed at Christmas. Uh, For many, of course, Christmas is the time of year when the in-laws become the outlaws. Uh, the problem is, we don't choose the members of our family. Now, most of the year, we can, we can cope with that, uh, take them in little doses, but at Christmas time, we are thrust together and we just have to get on with it. And what is true of the family unit at Christmas time is true of the Christian family all year round. When we are born again into the church family, we don't choose our brothers and sisters. The Christians around us are part of our family, whether we like it or not. And it's not easy living with people that we haven't chosen as our friends. It's not easy to get on with people that we wouldn't naturally choose to spend time with. But it is vital that we do. Not just to keep the peace. Not just because it makes life more pleasant. But because unity is a mark of the gospel. Indeed, failure to sort out our differences and to live at peace with one another is actually a denial of the gospel that we say we believe in. It is that important. Over the next few weeks, as we study Matthew chapter 18, we will learn to relate to one another properly, how to deal with disagreements and how to forgive others. As I've studied this chapter, I've been really surprised to discover just how seriously Jesus considers this issue to be. I really have been quite shocked at the strength of the words that he uses and his plea to act could not be more urgent than it is here. Look, for example, at chapter 18, verse 6. If anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Here is the most loving man who ever lived using that sort of language. Look on to verse 9. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. The issue we have before us of being united and of treating one another properly is of the utmost importance. We must learn from this chapter how to relate to one another. And it is particularly important for a, a church fellowship like ours. We are a large enough church that when we disagree, we can simply avoid each other. Carry on attending church and being involved in our small groups without ever dealing with our disagreements, never patching up relationships, just steering clear of our antagonists. 
And while there are many wonderful things about Christchurch Forward, this is something we do need to deal with because there are strained relationships here. There are people who've fallen out with others in the congregation and who have never really resolved the issue, never even made any attempt to. There are people who avoid others in the church. There are people who say things about others and make no attempt to deal with the individual they are tittle-tattling about. And you see, we will discover that just won't do. It is simply not an acceptable approach in the kingdom of God. So at this uh, time of New Year's resolutions, let's be resolved to obey all that we hear from Matthew chapter 18 over these next few weeks. The chapter begins with our our attitude, an attitude that is revealed in verse 1 in uh, the wrong kind of question, the first point, chapter 18, verse 1, the wrong kind of question. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the greatest? It's a very worldly question. It's all about wanting to be someone, wanting status, wanting significance. And it is a sure way to ruin relationships with others. Who is the greatest demands that someone has to be less and probably has to be put down. Asking who is the greatest comes from a desperate desire to be recognised. But it is such a worldly way of thinking. In the world of the workplace, there is a constant clamouring to be top dog. And you see, it is impossible for everybody to be at the top of the ladder. So someone has to be put down. See, as I strive to be the greatest, I must put others down or boast of my achievements, put myself up. So bragging or walking all over others, it's the way of the workplace and the way of the world. It happened all the time when I was working in the newspaper business and to my shame, I found myself completely embroiled in it too. Who is the greatest? That is the question the world asks. But desperately, that was the question on the lips of Jesus' disciples here in verse 1. Do you see, the same attitude creeps its way into the church. Clergymen desire to climb the career structures of the institution. Even the fact that they think in those terms is wrong. Career. Those who are not bothered about becoming bishops want to be vicar of the largest churches or speakers at the biggest Christian conferences or recognised as the best preacher. Who is the greatest? It happens here at Christchurch Forward. We want to be acknowledged as someone important in the church, someone the church would not be able to cope without. Do you ever want that to be the case for you? We want public recognition. In the past, I've seen Christian people get upset when they are not thanked publicly for the things they do in the church. But please, who are you working for? Home group leaders and Christianity explored leaders want their group to be the most successful group. You see, we could go on and on bubbling under the surface of Christ church forward and not just this church but every church because this happens in every church is this question in verse 1 who is the greatest but be sure if we allow that question to be on our lips or in any way to be significant to us we do not stand a chance of relating to our brothers and sisters as we should when I was growing up, my, my brother David was always the brightest in our family. I'm not really sure why I'm putting it in the past tense. He still is the brightest in our family. Uh, and I don't mind telling you that he did far better than I ever did and ever will do academically. And although our parents, wonderful they were, never measured me by his achievements, I still felt that I was in his shadow. And the result? I didn't like it when things went well for him. And if the truth be known, I was actually quite pleased when he failed at things. 
gave me a chance to shine. And you see how wanting to be the greatest is a sure way to wreck relationships. The wrong kind of question then, who is the greatest? Secondly, the right kind of attitude we'll see in verses 2 to 4. You see, as the disciples asked who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus told them that unless their attitude changed, they wouldn't even enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 2. He called a little child and had him stand among them and he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What a shock that is. The very question in verse 1 causes Jesus to question whether the disciples are even in God's kingdom. If we have a constant desire to be better than others, to be someone, to be the greatest, we have to ask, are we yet in God's kingdom at all? Now that really is scary, isn't it? You see, in order to enter God's kingdom, we need to be stripped of pride and self-importance. If you think you are someone special, you will never turn to Jesus to be forgiven. You will never trust in Christ alone for salvation if you, are think, if you think you are top dog. We must be humbled in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. That is the point of verse 3. And in verse 4, Jesus says, the way to enter God's kingdom is the way to live in God's kingdom. Verse 4, therefore whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. It's easy to picture the scene here. As Jesus taught those around him, he spotted a little child in the crowd and verse 2, he beckoned the little one to himself and he used that little boy or girl as a visual aid. And he said in verse 3, we are to change. See, unless you change. The question who is the greatest does not belong in the kingdom of God. We must change. And the word change means here, or suggests here, a change of attitude. Verse 4, we are to humble ourselves like a little child. Now let me stop here for a moment. See, as soon as we start talking about children and humbling ourselves, then there's an awful lot of misunderstanding going on about what Jesus is saying. As we look at this little child at Jesus' side, please avoid any sentimentality. Let's not be fooled into thinking that children are an example of humility. That is not what Jesus is saying. And any of you who are parents or grandparents, if you look at your children, will know that. I love my children very much. But like all children, they are neither innocent nor humble. When one of them does something well and I praise them, they quickly say, I'm really clever, aren't I, Daddy? That is not humble. Children are not naturally humble. In fact, they're little show-offs and quite often very full of themselves. They want to be the greatest in their class, in the family, even in sport. We have two girls, six-year-old twins. We went to the tennis court after Christmas and they're getting good at tennis. They can now hit the ball over the net. At one stage, we actually had a rally going four or five times back. I was thrilled. I'd already got designs on them, winning Wimbledon. (laughs) Naturally, I encouraged them. They went home with big smiles on their faces with one of them saying to Caroline, Mummy, I am really good at tennis. I can hit the ball over the net, for goodness sake. And the other, I'm better than my sister, aren't I, Daddy? (laughs) Who is the greatest? See, children ask the question as well as adults. I love them dearly, but children are not good examples of humility. That is not and cannot be Jesus' point at all. As Jesus took a child to himself, he was not saying, look at children and learn from their attitude. That won't do us any good. 
Now listen to R.T. France who writes very helpfully on this verse and he needs to because there's an awful lot of rubbish written on this verse. France makes the point that it's not children's characteristics that Jesus is pointing to but their status. A child was a person of no importance in Jewish society, subject to the authority of his elders, not taken seriously except as a responsibility, one to be looked after, not one to be looked up to. To to turn and become like a child is an acceptance of insignificance. It is the status of the child that is the point rather than any supposedly characteristic quality of children such as humility, innocence, receptiveness or trustworthiness. Now that is very helpful, isn't it? As much as we love and value children, we recognise that in terms of status and authority and position, they are not in charge. Well, they're not supposed to be most of the time anyway. They're not in charge. And you see, that is the point in verse 1. Who is the greatest? It's an issue of status and significance and authority. And so as Jesus took this little child to be standing by him, he was saying, we must be willing to take a position of non-status. We must consider ourselves unimportant in the kingdom of God. I must be prepared to consider myself nothing. That is how I enter the kingdom of God and that is how I should live as a child of God. And when I do that, do you see the point? When I do that, I will treat people properly. Considering others more important than myself. I wonder if you've noticed how you always relate to people well when you respect them. Have you noticed those people that you put down, when you think about it, you have no respect for them at all. That's why you do it. It was a a great privilege for me to work with John Stott when I was in London. He undoubtedly has been a great Christian leader these past decades and the evangelical church owes much to his faithful service, both here in Britain and, uh, and across the world. Whenever I met him during the seven years I was working at All Souls, I always treated him properly. I was never rude to him. When he walked into the room, I always acknowledged him. I listened carefully to him when he spoke. I valued his opinion. I didn't always agree, but I valued his opinion because I respect him. I don't consider myself more important than him, and so I treated him properly. You check it out. People you respect, you treat properly. People you don't treat properly, you don't respect and you think you're better than them. But if you want to be the greatest, you'll see others as rivals. You'll envy those who are greater, and you'll take every opportunity to put them down. You will have rivals. Humble yourself. Consider yourself nothing, and you'll treat people with proper respect. Do you see, good relationships in the church flow out of a proper understanding of the gospel. We must view ourselves as not important. Not not important to God and not not valuable to God. That's not what we're saying. But not not more important than the next person. That's why we had these wonderful words from Philippians chapter 2 read in our service. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, looking at Jesus and looking at the cross is the way to have this attitude. 
As you take communion today, ask yourself, would Jesus have died for me if in some measure I were great? As you take communion, remember that Jesus died for you because you are a wretched sinner. You see, at the foot of the cross, the question who is the greatest is right off the agenda. I am a wretched sinner. We cannot enter the kingdom of God unless we humble ourselves, verse 3. So, Christian, humble yourself under God's mighty hand. And before we leave this point, because we are so sinful, Christian, beware of the danger of an inverted ambition which comes in at this point. Striving to be humble so that others will say we're the greatest. You see, we even blow it there, don't we? The wrong kind of question, who is the greatest? The right kind of attitude, humble yourselves. Thirdly, the right way to act, welcome others. Verses 5 to 7. Verse 5. Whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. Welcome others. That's the application of this passage. All this thinking we're doing, we've already done and we'll do in a few moments, all this thinking, it all boils down to these two words, welcome others. But this simply won't happen unless I have the right attitude. If you're striving to be the greatest, you won't welcome others, you'll see them as rivals. Now, so that we're not confused, it is important to know that at this point, the child from verse 2 has moved back into the crowd. The little boy or little girl is no longer standing by Jesus' side. And so now, as Jesus talks about welcoming a little child in verse 5, and as he speaks in verse 6 of these little ones, he's not now talking about children, but about his disciples. See, in Matthew's Gospel, little ones is language used to describe Christians. Uh, I put a, a note on the, on the handout. Uh, Matthew chapter 10, verse 42. There's no need to turn to it. But that makes it very clear that this language of little ones is talking about disciples. I'll read it for you. If anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he'll certainly not lose his reward. Verse 5, then, is about welcoming Christians. It seems such a small point. It is actually huge. And a careful look at verse 5 will tell you it couldn't be more important. Verse 5, whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me, says Jesus. Welcoming other Christians is tantamount to welcoming Jesus. And therefore, if we do not welcome other Christians, we are rejecting Jesus. The preacher Mervyn Eloff puts it like this. Jesus is saying that so-called insignificant believer is united to me. You reject them and you reject me. Now just allow that to sink in for a moment. If you take note of nothing else this morning, please take note of verse 5. Because if we all believed this one statement in verse 5 and if we all really allowed it to direct our dealings with other Christians, it would instantly end any wrong treatment of Christian towards Christian. In verse 5, Jesus is saying, that so-called insignificant believer is united to me, you reject them, and you reject me. See, there are no insignificant believers. So, verse 6, if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. If I fail to welcome one of my fellow believers because I think I'm greater than them, I may well cause them to stumble. 
That is to fall away from Jesus. Stumble, you see, is the word here in verse 6 that the NIV translates sin. And to stumble here doesn't just mean to trip over and then to get up again. The word stumble refers to the trigger mechanism of a booby trap or an anti-personnel mine. The little trip wire between two bushes that when it's tripped, jumps up and blows up in your face. The things human beings will do to one another. It's appalling to create such a device. And yet, we do the same thing when we fail to welcome Christians and they stumble. Failing to welcome Christians is a spiritual anti-personnel device. I met Graham at a friend's wedding. Uh, we, we found ourselves on the same table at the reception. He, he asked me what I did for a job. I said I was a clergyman and he said, I, I went to church for a, a while, a few years ago, but I stopped going. Why did you stop going, I said. No one talked to me and so Sunday mornings was the loneliest part of the week for me. As we uh, chatted further, he told me how he'd become interested in Christian things. Life had not gone so well for him. He began to wonder if there was more to life. He began to understand the gospel, became a Christian, went to church. But no one welcomed him. And so he stopped going. And I don't know where he was Christianly then. Verse 5. Whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Desperately, Graham's experience is not an isolated incident. In the last 12 months since arriving in Forward, I keep meeting people who have given up on church. People who were involved but are not involved anymore. For all sorts of reasons, people stop being involved, but sometimes it's because of the way they've been treated by others by other Christians. Now do you see how desperate that is? When people are no longer part of the church, they stop growing and developing and maturing in Christ. Usually in time their relationship with Jesus ends. Often they say they still believe, but they don't read their Bible or pray anymore. And so what meaningful relationship do they actually have with Jesus? And I've come across it again and again over these past months here, around these parts. People who've left the church because of other Christians... And verse 6 tells me if I am the reason that people leave the church because I wouldn't welcome them as I should, because I thought too highly of myself, then woe betide me. See, if anyone, verse 6, causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone hung around his neck. To cause people to stumble, that is to, to fall away from Jesus. To cause people to stumble is deadly for them and for me. To have an overinflated view of myself is a spiritual anti-personnel device. When I want to be the greatest, I am wired to kill. Now look, as a preacher and a pastor, I find this verse terrifying. In the light of this verse, the thought of being the cause of offence is petrifying. And what's your response? I'll tell you what mine was when I first started to grapple with this. I wanted to justify myself. My first response was, it's not my fault if people turn away from Jesus. And Jesus says, no, it may not be, verse 7, you see. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to sin. Woe to the world. Yes, the world we live in will cause people to stumble, to fall away from Jesus. He says in verse 7, such things must come, but then look what he says at the end of verse 7. 
Woe to the one through whom they come. See, sometimes it is our fault when people fall away from Jesus, when we fail to welcome them. And you see, a failure to welcome can be very subtle. We do not welcome people when we we want to do church our way with these particular words and these songs and in this style and when we will not put up with any other way of doing church because it's not the way we like it, even if it's not welcoming to others. No, this is the way I like to do it. Oh, when others come to to church the way I do church, I'll be all smiles and shake them by the hand and very welcoming. But I will not change the way I like to do things or then I'm not welcoming others. It's very subtle. Question, are we guilty of failing to welcome others? Well, finally, we're told we must take drastic action to be sure that we don't sin by causing others to stumble. See, the wrong kind of question, who is the greatest? The right kind of attitude, humble yourself. The right way to act, welcome others. And fourthly and briefly, the necessary thing to do, cut out pride. Verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into the fire of hell. I must take drastic action to cut pride out of my life so that I don't cause others to stumble. If you do a Google search on the name Aaron Ralston, you will, need a, you will read a story that hit the news some years ago. You might remember it when I start telling you it. Aaron Ralston, a mountaineer, was 27 years old when he was trapped in a remote desert canyon in eastern Utah. His arm had been trapped by a boulder weighing approximately 1,000 pounds that uh, fell on him while he was hiking. Having been trapped in the mountains for five days because his arm, he couldn't move his arm, With no sign of rescue, Ralston used a pocket knife to cut through his own arm below the elbow. He then applied a tourniquet and he administered first aid to himself before rigging anchors and fixing a rope to rappel to the bottom of Blue John Canyon and he then hiked out to meet rescuers. Aaron Ralston took drastic action to save his life. And what Aaron Ralston did physically to save his life, Jesus says we are to do spiritually to save our souls. See verse 8, if your hand causes you to sin or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and to be thrown into the eternal fire. If we are causing others to stumble, then we are sinning. That's the point of verse 6. If we will not welcome others because we think too highly of ourselves, because we want to be the greatest, then we will cause others to stumble, to fall away from Jesus. And if we are the cause of others falling from Jesus, then we are in grave spiritual danger. Now, of course, let's not forget the Gospel here. Jesus is not saying that we are saved by our welcoming of others. But he is saying, if we do not care for others, and if we care about being the greatest then we may not yet be in the God's kingdom at all. So, says Jesus, cut out anything that leads to pride. Take drastic measures to deal with anything that makes you yearn to be the greatest, the top dog. Anything that makes you puff yourself up, cut it out. 
Now, Christian, let me ask you, what is, what is it that causes you to be so full of yourself? You must cut it out. If, verse 8, it is your hand, that is, the things that you do, or if, verse 8, it is your foot, that is, the places that you go, or if, verse 9, it is your eye, that is, the things you read or watch, then cut it out. If what you do or the places you go or the things you look at causes, causes you to think too highly of yourself and hinder you from humbling yourself, then it is doing you such spiritual harm that you may harm others and it may be the fact that you're not even in the kingdom of God because of it. Cut it out. Do whatever it takes, says Jesus. Verse 10. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones. Let's pray together. Well, let me leave a a moment of silence for you to bring your own prayers to God and make your own response to all that you've heard from the Lord Jesus. Maybe asking the Holy Spirit to give you the strength to act as you should. And then after a moment, David will continue to lead us in our prayers.